Well, we are in Exodus 32 this morning. Exodus 32, if you don't have a Bible, there's one under one of the chairs around you somewhere, or there's maybe an app on your phone or something like that. Uh, Exodus 32, if you're taking notes, the title is The God Who Relents. The God Who Relents. I want to open as you're turning there, I want to open by just reminding us of a couple of very important verses that were written by the Apostle Paul about the nature of Scripture. This comes from 2 Timothy 3 and Romans 15. He writes, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And in Romans, he writes, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. I read those because at this church, we believe that all Scripture is important. Old Testament, New Testament, yes, even the genealogies are important. This is why we study every text of the Bible thoroughly, intentionally, And yet, it's okay to recognize there are some texts that are uniquely significant, and I say that because Exodus 32 is without a doubt one of those significant chapters in the Bible, certainly in the Old Testament. It's relatable to anyone who reads it. It's filled with deep tragedy and incredible mercy. I like to think of it as the gospel in real life found in the Old Testament. And before we read it, let me share with you the context so that you can understand just the weight of this chapter and its meaning. And when we do read it, we're going to read the whole chapter in one reading. But for starters, here's some things to consider for context. From a literary perspective, this chapter, chapter 32 and to 34, sit in the middle between God's instructions to Moses on how to build the tabernacle And then Moses' instructions to the people on how to build the tabernacle. So right in the middle, it's sort of sandwiched in between these two texts about the tabernacle and this space that God wanted His people to make where He would dwell with them. And, And there's significance in that. But secondly, from a historical perspective, this story occurs while Moses was on Mount Sinai receiving God's written law that he wrote with his own hand on tablets of stone. We read back in chapter 24 that God ratified or reestablished his covenant with his people, and that when that was over, God actually called Moses alone. He said, come up to the top of the mountain, and we read there at the end that he was with God on the top of the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, and he left Aaron and her in charge of the rest of the people. Thirdly, this story occurs near the end of those 40 days that Moses was on top of the mountain. And it was also after the Israelites, all of them, the entire nation, heard God say, speak the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai. They all heard Him speak. They all knew what God expected of them. It wasn't just that they heard through Moses. They all heard what God spoke in the Ten Commandments. They all heard His voice. And then lastly, this story occurs 
after Moses and Aaron and Aaron's two sons and 70 of the elders of Israel, in chapter 24, we read that they all saw God. They beheld His glory. It, it, in the text, it describes they saw kind of His lower half and the ground underneath, and, and it says that they celebrated there by eating and drinking together. And here's the point. As we come to chapter 32, everything is awesome. <laughs> Everything's going well. God had delivered them from slavery in Egypt. He had defeated the false gods in Egypt. He drowned them in the Red Sea. God fed His people with manna, this heavenly bread in the wilderness. God established His covenant with them. He had given them His law. At this moment, He was giving to Moses instructions for this great tent, this tabernacle where God said, I will dwell among you, among my people. Everything was great. Meanwhile, as Moses is on top of the mountain, right before he's about to return, we read chapter 32 and this tragic story. And what I want to do this morning is focus on, as we're reading it, three main characters. The first is just the people themselves and their great sin. And then the second thing I want to focus in on is Moses and his incredible intercession. And then thirdly, we'll focus on God and his marvelous mercy. And from those three sort of characters, I want to make one point this morning, and it's this, that where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. Let's read this chapter. We're going to read the whole thing together because it's such a good story, and we'll let it speak for itself. Verse 1, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people." Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored 
the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. <clears throat> then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of cry of defeat but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up in the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. What an idiot. Anyway, when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now I will, if you will, forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. 
But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. If there was a top 10 list of stories in the Old Testament that so tightly, so relevantly shows how the gospel works, this story would certainly be on the top of that list. Like I said a moment ago, when you read this story, I think most people have two reactions when they read this story. They are stunned. If you know the story that has led up to this place, you know you're stunned at how foolish these people were by disobeying God and making this idol in the form of a golden calf. But then after that settles in and you're stunned at how stupid these people are, and I hope you're not offended by that word stupid because I'm going to say it a lot more today. After that, though, the second reaction is you realize how relatable you are to these people and how just how foolish they were, you too and all of us can be just as foolish and unwise and sinful. And, and I think, again, people focus on that part of the story because it's so relatable and so obvious, but it would actually be wrong to focus our attention on just that one part of the story, their great sin, because it's three parts of this story, their great sin, but also Moses' great intercession, and then God's marvelous mercy. And we need to understand how do all of these parts sort of work together? And what I've argued is this, is that how all of those things are working together, it's pointing us to this one point, that where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. And so with that said, we're going to look at these three ideas or these three characters and how they support that main idea, starting with the people and their great sin. Right away in the story, we are confronted with this foolish act of transgression. Transgression is a fancy word that basically means I know the line and I cross it anyway. I know the law and I break it. That's transgression. So right away, we're confronted with this foolish act, this foolish transgression. Because of all that has happened already in the book, it is not difficult to see when we get to chapter 32 how ridiculous, how outrageous this sin was. And friends, that's the point. We are supposed to see how ridiculous and how outrageous and how foolish and stupid this sin really was. It was it's supposed to shock you, the reader. And what's so interesting about that is we still do the same thing. We still do the same thing. There are several features, though, of this great sin that make it so great. First, notice the cause of their sin. What does it say in verse 1? It was because Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain. After all, think about it. They'd been waiting so, so long, just over a month. <laughs> it took just over a month. Think about this. 400 years, they were in slavery in Egypt. And God, through mighty hand and an outstretched arm and all of these wonders and miracles, over a several-week period, delivered them from Egypt, and it only took just barely over a month 
for impatience to set in, which gave way to sin. I'm curious how often people fall into sin, not because of temptation. Oh, this thing over here is, looks good, and I'm going to go that direction, which is usually the cause of sin. I think another reason why people fall into sin is because they get tired of waiting on God and on His timing. And so they decide, because of fear or anxiety, they take matters into their own hands and their own time. All it took was one month, just a little over one month, for these people to grow impatient and give up on waiting on this God who delivered them from slavery in Egypt. And so they pressured Aaron to make them gods that they could worship because it's not good enough that they sin. They have to implicate everybody else into it, right? That's how sin works. And evidently, we discover here that Aaron was also stupid. He was a coward. He was a weasel. He was a people pleaser. He maybe did not like conflict. And so he gives in pretty quickly, and he called everyone to contribute gold, and, <coughs> and he makes an idol, and he fashions a golden calf. Now, there's two things to remind ourselves of. First, remember, every single person in the nation of Israel literally heard God say on Mount Sinai these words in the Ten Commandments, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. The reason for this is because God is spirit and there is nothing in heaven or on earth in His creation that you could compare God to or put Him in the likeness of. And so he tells them in this command, don't even attempt to do that. Don't try and reduce God down to something in His creation. And yet here, weeks later, after everybody hearing that, they all just like forget it, and they break this clear command. But not only did they hear God say this, everyone in the nation, but Aaron and his two sons, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the leaders of Israel all saw God in chapter 24. They all literally saw his lower half and, and the ground, and they, they beheld his glory. Now, I wasn't there. None of us were there. But I can only imagine it would be hard to pretend while making a golden calf that I can recreate that experience with gold and fire, that I have the ability in myself or any of us to manufacture that kind of divine experience, having witnessed it themselves. It is so stupid what they're doing. It is foolish what is going on. And weeks later, they make God look like a cow. And not just any cow, a small cow, a calf. <laughs> Now, secondly, what's also tragic about this is that that very moment, God was giving instructions to Moses to make this beautiful, this ornate tabernacle with an ark to be placed in the center of it where God was essentially saying, I'm going to dwell among my people. It was going to be a tangible expression of His glory of heaven on earth where He would meet with His people, where He would talk with His people, where they would come and meet with Him and pray and have their prayers heard. It was a glorious tent that was fit for a king, not a cow. And, and yet they settle for this. And that's the tragedy of idolatry 
It's settling for something less than God's perfect will and plan for you as they did here. They gave into impatience and peer pressure and they all sinned against the true God who delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. I guess one thing that we learn from this story is this. You can take the sinner out of Egypt, but you got to take Egypt out of the sinner. That's the greater delivery, right? You can pull away from the world, you can get rid of the friends, but that sort of redemption is one part of the plan. The other part of the plan is all the sin that's in here, the idolatry that's in the heart. That also has to be dealt with, and that's what we're seeing here. You can pull the sinner out of Egypt, but eventually God wants to deliver the Egypt out of the sinner, that worldliness that sinfulness, that idolatry that's in the human heart. And certainly they learn this behavior in their time in Egypt, and in a moment of panic and fear, they turn back to what they knew. I think this is very common to see in new Christians. New Christians, they come to Christ, they experience this great joy, and then they experience a trial, some test of faith. Maybe it's a relationship breaking, maybe it's a job ending, whatever. It can be a whole bunch of things, a health crisis. And all of a sudden, they're being tested in their faith and trusting in God and waiting on Him coming through. And instead of doing that, they turn back to old friends, to old habits, to old sin. And they know none of that works, but yet they do it. We do it all the time. This is human nature. When God doesn't meet our expectations or our timelines, we go back to our old ways, which is both foolish and tragic. And what's even more tragic is they twist what God promised. Earlier in the book, God told Moses to tell Pharaoh, let my people go so that they may go into the wilderness and hold a feast for me. It was supposed to be this beautiful, this holy, this divine feast of celebration. And they hold a feast. Instead, though, it's not filled with holiness and joy, it's filled with sexual sin and debauchery. They rose up to play is the way the ESV translates that. Their sin made them stupid. That's the point in this early part of the chapter. I think we see that most clearly in Aaron's weasel-like response, right? When confronted by Moses later, he couldn't even fully own up to his mistakes, and he blames the people, and then he tries to claim that this was a miracle that happened. A calf came into being, but we know what happened. Moses knew what happened, and Aaron looks stupid. The point is simple. Sin is stupid. It makes you do stupid things, and it makes you look stupid in the end. That's bad enough, but more than that, Sin invites the wrath of God, the judgment of God, the righteous judgment of God upon you. Now, I wish I could say, wouldn't it be so nice if we could just say, okay, yeah, sin is stupid, stop sinning then. Wouldn't that be great if we could just like stop doing that, right? And, and in one sense, we should. We should be wrestling with, with sin. We should be pursuing holiness, and we should be running, fleeing temptation. We should be doing all of those things and resting in faith, but that is not good enough. What that is is that's moralism, which is trying to be as good of a person as possible, but that doesn't work. That's not good news. That's not the gospel story, because as long as we live in a fallen world, in these broken bodies, amidst a real enemy, sin will be ever-present, even as we struggle against it. The good news is not that you can stop sinning. 
The good news is that even when you do, you have an advocate who stands in the gap for you and who has your back. Isn't that what John wrote in 1 John 2? <clears throat> My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation, which is a fancy word for saying he appeases the wrath of God. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. For us, the good news of the gospel is that even when we screw up, there is an advocate in heaven right now who stands in the gap between us and God and says, I've already paid for that person. They are mine. I have covenant with them. They are washed and cleaned by the blood of Christ. He has paid the price for our sin, absorbing the wrath of God in our place. That's what we celebrate as Christians. But for them, they had an advocate with God, with the Father, and His name was Moses, which brings us to the second topic and character in the story, the Moses and his incredible intercession. To be honest, I think most people remember the golden calf and how stupid these people were and their great sin. But Moses is actually the feature character of this story. What he does in response to their sin and foolishness is the highlight because not only does it uh, abate or stop or cause God to relent from what he was doing, it also shows the model for how we can escape the wrath of God that awaits us for our sin. We need an intercessor. Notice in the story, God comes to Moses. That's the first move. God sees what's going on, and what does he do? He comes to Moses first, and he says, hey, Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up have corrupted themselves. It's like the mom saying to her husband, your son, that one you bore, he is being dumb. You need to go in the room and have a conversation with him, right? It's, he's separating himself in that sense. And he says that to Moses, your people who you brought up, Moses, they've corrupted themselves. You need to go down there and handle that. And God tells him, I'm going to wipe them all out. I'm kind of done. They're stubborn. They disobey me. They're quick to disobey me. And I'm going to continue my redemptive plan through you, Moses. Notice nothing of what God says is wrong. It's not against his character. It's not against his promises or his word to his people. He's like, I'm going to continue my plan. It'll just be through you, Moses. Nothing about what he says is wrong or bad. And yet Moses, notice, does not concede to the plan. Instead, he intercedes on their behalf. And I think in that sense shows in the story that Moses had finally become the leader that God and his people needed him to be. But notice the three things he does. First, he responds to God and says, yo, yo, not my people. These are your people, God, your people whom you brought up. And second, he reminds God of the witness to the nations. He's like, listen, if you destroy all of these people, what are they going to say? What are the Egyptians going to say? That you're evil to your people. That's what they're going to conclude. And then third, he broadens out the context of that promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's like, you made these promises to make your people into a mighty nation, and they're already here. 
In this moment, Moses, he's not making excuses for their sin. He wasn't minimizing it. He's not redefining it as people like to do. All he did was plead to God on their behalf based on the character and promises that God made to them. It is a perfect model of intercessory prayer. And what's amazing is it works. It works. And he tells, the text tells us there, God relented from destroying them. Now, this forces us to ask a theological question. Does this mean that the immutable, the unchanging God can change, that He can change His mind? We would quickly answer and say, no. The Bible is very clear. God is immutable. He does not change. But does this imply in the text that God changed His mind? The answer is yes. Well, how can that be? How can both of those truths cooperate together? And it is a mysterious paradox, but it is two truths that are working simultaneously together. But we need to remember the point of the story. The story is not to highlight some theological discussion about God's immutability. The point of this story is to highlight that intercessory prayer works, especially when we pray in line with God's will and God's word from a selfish posture. And that's exactly what Moses does. We know it was selfless. Did I say selfish? Scratch that. Selfless. We know it was selfless because at the end of the story, Moses tells the people, I'm going to go back to God and perhaps I can make atonement for them. And when he goes, what does he do when he goes? This incredible thing. He offers his life in replacement of their life. He wants to be a substitute for them, an atoning substitute for them. And God doesn't actually accept His offer. But what He does do is He lessens the consequence. Of course, all of this for us should direct our attention and minds to the intercessory work of Jesus Christ, who when He was on the earth also offered up His life, His perfect life, on behalf of God's sinful people. But unlike Moses, God received his offer and received his life as a substitute, an atoning substitute for our sin. It was Jesus who ultimately bore the wrath of God for sin, for my sin, for your sin. It wasn't me. It wasn't you. We couldn't pay the price for our own sin. Jesus did that for us and for all those who have put their faith in him. Moses was the intercessor that God's people needed as he spoke to God. But notice Moses didn't just speak to God in the story. He speaks to Aaron and to the people. He confronts Aaron on his sin and his lack of leadership, and he brings it to the light, though Aaron would like to hide it. Isn't that what we do in the same way with our own sin? We try and hide it. We try and redefine it. We try and recategorize it. We try and make it seem like it wasn't as bad as it obviously is, but Moses here, and Jesus does the same for us, he brings it to the surface, not to embarrass us or to bring shame upon us, but so that it can be dealt with, and so that through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we can actually be made holy, and that's why we have the church, we have fellow believers to come around us to help us see the things that we cannot see in order that we might become more and more and more like Jesus, and He does this because He loves us. He doesn't want us to be foolish in sin, instead to walk in fullness of joy. 
The great news of this story is that though the sin was great, God's grace was even greater. And when we sin, and sin we will, we have an advocate with the Father, which brings us to our our last character in the story, which is God and His marvelous mercy. I think some people wrongly interpret the God that is presented in this story as an angry God. It's like that, that parent who like sees toothpaste on the counter, you know, from their five-year-old and just loses it and throws things against the wall and, and it's just one more thing and they're just a loose cannon basically. But that's not the case at all. In fact, we'll discover next week or two weeks from now just exactly who this God is from His own words, which has been the whole series in Exodus, the God who is. We're trying to discover God as He reveals Himself to His people. The reality is, is though God was righteously angry and justified in His wrath, we know that He was justified because of the things that they had done. But we also notice it was God who sent Moses to go to His people. It was God, the Father, who prepared Moses long before this moment to be the mediator that his people needed. And though we still do see justice from God in the killing of the 3,000, which maybe perhaps were the leaders of this movement, maybe they were the ones who were unrepentant in the end, we also see God sends this plague among them. We also see great mercy God did not give to them what they deserved because of what Moses did. And we also see that God gave to the Levites what they did not deserve, grace, and He ordained them into ministry and sacred service to Him. But the fact remains, though God is justified in His wrath against sin and against those who practice it, this story further highlights that God gives grace to the undeserving. And that is also evident in the person and work of Jesus. When Jesus came to earth, He came by the will of the Father. He came because before the foundation of the world, before God made anything, God had a plan. I'm going to make the world, oh, and I'm going to eventually have to save the world because they're going to sin. And so God the Father, God the Son had this plan that the Father would send the Son and the Son would obediently come and He would give His life for a fallen world. And we see all of that modeled in this story. Here's what we need to walk away with today, that though sin is great, grace abounds even more, which is not an excuse to keep on sinning. As we see clearly in the story, sin is stupid, and it makes you stupid, and everyone can tell (laughs) it's stupid. It's not an excuse to keep on sinning, but a great assurance that when you do God's grace is even greater than that sin, and that you have an advocate in Christ who always has your back and is working to help you become more and more like His Son, Jesus, and the person that He wants you to be. And for that, we praise the Lord, and we praise Him for His good news and His gospel to us. Why don't we pray, and then we'll have a time of communion together. God, we come before you this morning, and And we are so grateful for your grace to us. We read a story like this and we are immediately confronted with our own foolishness, with our own tendencies to go back 
into habits and sin patterns and foolishness that we previously repented of, that we previously confessed as foolish and as sinful, and we put our faith and trust in you, and yet we often do the same thing where we go back to those things that don't give life, but instead produce death and devastation and destruction in our lives and and in our relationships. And in all of that, we have this great hope through Jesus that even when we are faithless, He remains faithful, that even when we go astray because we're prone to wander, that the Lord comes and searches for us, and He finds us, and, and He prays for us. And we are so grateful for this wonderful grace that is greater than all of our sin. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.